Father, thank you for uh, the word of God that's um, among us today that you are preaching. You're the one, you're the voice. Uh, And so your text is James 4. Uh, We pray that this will become more real, uh, more tangible, um, uh, more inescapable, uh, what you're calling us to do by way of change. Thank you for the, the, the gospel that is present in us. We have sung about the gospel in our service, that you are by your spirit among us and you are working. So we humbly ask that you would take this time and use it for deep and marvelous and glorious purposes. And in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Okay, so uh, there's an opening quote I want to give you there. Uh, It's so good. We ought to just read it and look at it. And uh, maybe you want to cut this out or put this on your refrigerator. Uh, It's right underneath getting oriented there in the bold. Take a look at that quote. God simply doesn't, or God doesn't simply cool the heat in our lives, he transforms us in the middle of it. Now, the heat in our lives is our circumstances. The heat in our lives is what we find ourselves involved with, uh, what's happening to us, perhaps. The heat in our life is our circumstances. Now, the heat can also be something within us, our own personal expectations, our own desires, our own wants, the things we think we need out of, out of life. So a lot of this heat can be internal. Sometimes we can be just grumpy and dissatisfied and uh, prickly and overly sensitive, and we're just all by ourselves. <laughs> uh, and so that indicates that there's trouble within, within our hearts. Now, the heart is this complex part of us. The heart is where you're making decisions the heart is where your, your wants, your pleasures, desires, um, pursuits, this part of us that, that decides, finds something to want, so, finds something to pursue, this heart is very active. It's not passive. It's not just your brain, uh, though your brain is actively working. There's a part of you that's just at the gut level responding to life, And we are, at times, largely unaware of how we're even responding because we are just in kind of a rut of living or the way we've been nurtured, the way we've been conditioned, the way we have just been uh, trained to sort of respond to life. And so our hearts need to be seen by us. Our hearts need to be understood by us. Self-knowledge Self-knowledge is really, really important. And uh, in fact, you could even say that there's a, a theological category for that. It is, is wisdom, right? It is personal wisdom about yourself. Christian counselor Ed Welch says that sanctification, the process of growing in holiness, sanctification is like a clumsy, clumsy slow walk rather than a light switch that we turn from off to on, a clumsy, slow walk. So if that describes you, and I think that probably describes all of us, I would think, uh, I hope you feel comfortable here, because we are all in a clumsy manner walking, uh, stumbling forward. Um, 
the James passage is hard to hear. Isn't it hard to hear? God is gracious among his people. God is gracious to you, and he gives more grace. And he is, even in the most severe and direct uh, scriptures, we will find God in his love helping us in our clumsy, slow walk. So today we explore this vitally important subject. Why do we get entangled? Why do we get entangled? Entangled is a phrase or word that comes uh, out of uh, how people change. The heat, and there's two hearts. And out of those hearts grow two trees. The one heart responding by faith in that moment, in the here and now, that heart responds with faith toward God. The resources that are in Christ, that heart produces a tree that bears good fruit. Patience, love, joy, long-suffering, right? Perseverance, kindness, right? speech that's gracious, right? Speech that's uplifting. So that heart responding in faith under the heat is producing good fruit. Now the heart that responds with unbelief, fear, pride, that produces a thorny tree. This imagery comes from Jeremiah 17. That heart produces a thorny tree. So from that heart response comes slander and gossip and hypersensitivity and selfishness and all these other things that come out, negative things that come out of our hearts. So the term thorny is describing how we get entangled and, the, and what we produce in our responses to life, to people, our circumstances. Thorny is describing the response. So the question is, why do we get thorny? Now, typical, typical responses of people is that other people are making them, right? This is other people make me this, right? So other people make me angry, right? Uh, uh, in how people change, uh, you don't get a, you don't get away with that. Uh, this uh, this perspective on the Christian life, you don't get to go through life blaming other people. Uh, you don't have to be a Christian to do that. So when we think about my thorny responses, one thorny response is turning to another person and blaming them. Now this story is so. Like, it's so worth saying out loud that I've got to read this for you. It's so worth it. Uh, it's from chapter 10, and it's under the subject of diagnosing the real problem. Please bear with me. I'm trying to avoid a book report here, but this is really rich. It gets better and better, or worse and worse, depending on how you look at it. Over the years, Joe had reached his own conclusion about his problem. He had simply married the wrong woman. You know where this is going. Mary was cool. She avoided talking to him. He never felt like she was in, like she was in the marriage 100%. She was also spontaneous and unorganized. Joe had concluded that if Mary would stop avoiding him and do a better job of keeping the house in order, it would eliminate his problem with anger. Are you ready? <laughs> Are you ready? This is what Mary had tried to do for two decades. There were times when the demands of parenting kept her from getting the housework done. Joe would get agitated and eventually complain to Mary about her lack of organization. And it was true, Mary was not as organized as Joe. 
even as even she began to think she was the problem. She lived with a gnawing sense of guilt and failure whenever Joe got angry. She redoubled her efforts to be conscientious about the housework, especially when Joe told her that he would be a nicer person if she would stay on top of things. He also told her that she needed to get better at resolving conflict. Joe didn't see that he wasn't someone you wanted to... Oh, Joe didn't see that he wasn't someone you wanted to spend a lot of time talking to. He was someone who could win any argument by the sheer volume of his words. Their pastor suggested that Mary get help from others to keep the house more organized. He thought that this would relieve pressure on both of them and improve the tone of their relationship. Household cleaning teams from the church came to the house weekly to help Mary straighten up vacuum and dust. This also helped Mary plan a menu for the week. This seemed to help for a while, but Joe became even more demanding and hostile. He had an uncanny ability to find things around the house that were not cleaned and organized to his liking. On a few occasions, he called the pastor to complain that the people helping Mary were not doing an adequate job. He suggested that the church select a different group of people to help and even supplied a list of wives he thought were competent housekeepers. Surprisingly, the church did that. At first, this seemed to help, but soon Joe was dissatisfied with this group of women as well. Mary once again became the focus of attention. Quote, if you would be more organized and take care of things, we wouldn't need all these other people in our house and who, and who don't know what, we're doing, what they're doing anyway, he said. As, the, as that solution wore thin, their pastor suggested finding someone to help them communicate better. The first time they met with the counselor, Joe was amazingly articulate about Mary's failings. He dominated the entire session, detailing Mary's problems with communication and conflict. Predictably, Mary received a lot of advice about how to communicate better. Quote, a gentle answer turns away wrath, she was told. She began to open up and express her concerns and opinions to Joe as gently as possible. This only made Joe angrier. He started complaining about how argumentative Mary had become. Mary had, uh, she was not following his lead as her husband. These efforts failed within the first month. And they go on to describe Joe's problem as rooted back in Genesis 3, Adam saying the classic, the woman you gave me. So this concern about trying to label other people, uh, I don't know, have you, have, you ever, have you noticed this with cell phones? I don't know, that people are just talking away out in front of the coffee shop and they're saying such nice things about other people. Have you heard this before? I mean, it's a strange thing. Maybe it's just me. I hear people, and do you know what he said? And they're, in other words, they're repeating, representing someone else. Oh, in such a nice way, by the way, right? This is the world that we often live in. These are, we are thinking that this is a solution to the problem. This is a solution to the problem. And it actually might feel like it works for a while and keep people people off your back, but it really doesn't. And so the first area is other people. Another area is family of origin. Some people uh, pride themselves in being perhaps Italian or they're um, Irish or whatever their background is, and then they begin to say, you know, the Irish are always angry or we're, we always, right? And so we kind of fall back on that. 
Some people say I've had a bad day, so it relates to my my sleep, my lack of sleep. Um, I, I have difficulty uh, in life. I'm having difficulties, and I'm just like this when I have hard days, right? And then others would say my body made me do it. Um, the chemicals in my body are requiring me to be uh, angry or something like that, right? The things that are in me are... Uh, are, are, are shaping, are, are, are such an influence in me, the, the treatment, the medicine, uh, it is making me, me do these things. We want to also make sure that we understand people are suffering and people who don't get enough sleep uh, need compassion or people who are experiencing health challenges need our compassion, and that's, that's a good thing. We, want, we don't want to minimize the brokenness and the suffering that people experience. Jesus fed hungry people. We want to recognize that. And Jesus had compassion on people who suffered. But we also want to watch carefully. I'm just on number three here on the outline. Uh, We want to look very carefully at if someone is proposing a solution, has the solution bypassed the centrality of the gospel? Uh, And so if a person is, let's say a person is dealing with, with anger, um, you can have lots of sort of tweaks and uh, adjustments and sort of little uh, clever advice for that person and how to how to slow down their reactions and that sort of thing. But really at, at the heart of it, if you go deeper into it, an angry person is probably trying to control something. And so it, it's sort of like on the surface you have the behavior, but underneath the surface you have the heart that's active and doing something. So an angry person, for instance, you'd want to help them find a solution in the gospel. The gospel tells us that God's in control. The gospel tells us that God is providentially overseeing someone's life. God is working good things. It's difficult to see at times. And a person needs to work at the, at the faith level as they're responding to life, that there is a Lord and it is not this person. And so uh, using their words in order to build up, in order to be constructive, instead of just venting one's anger. So anger has a deeper rooted problem and we want to make sure as we counsel people, we're actually thinking about, well, what are the resources that are in Jesus? How does the cross relate to this particular moment, this particular issue. And this does, it, it's, uh, it takes work, it takes time, uh, it takes thought to begin to really reflect on what does it look like for me to believe God and his promises in this moment. So what is, uh, number four, what is your biggest problem? Uh, this is a good reflective question. What is your biggest problem Uh, Tim Keller suggests this as a definition for idolatry, which the Bible would say is your biggest problem. Idolatry is an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, I have to have that. Then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. If I have that, Meaning, value, significance, and security. 
And uh, perhaps one of the best ways to describe idolatry is it is a form of bowing down to some aspect of creation. So it is the heart turning away from the living God and turning to some aspect of this creation. So it is the demands that I must put upon my husband. It's the it's the requirements that must be fulfilled in my children. It's the way I have to have my family seen by others. Something is gripping the heart, and in that gripping is actually much more than just, oh, I'm just frustrated. It's actually, if this would serve me better, if this would come through, then I would find deep happiness. Professional athletes discover uh, this. Uh, not all of them, but some have confessed that when they won the Super Bowl or when they uh, won some event, they begin to see that, it, it, first of all, it didn't supply that saving power that they thought it would. And they begin to see how, how it actually promised something that they could not live by. Uh, actor Matt Damon, uh, who won an Academy Award early in his life, in his early 20s, he went home and reflected and looked at the statue just after the ceremony, and uh, he was thankful, I don't know to, to whom, but he was thankful that he got this award early in life because he looked at it and said, he was glad he got it, but he realized it wasn't everything. It wasn't everything. Now, imagine chasing that all you know, into your 70s, right? So idols do this. Idols, I th like to think of idols as whispering in our ear. Idols want to be taken care of. Idols want to be listened to. Um, idols think of a competitive performance um, and someone who gets a bronze medal in the Olympics, and the idol whispers to that athlete as they walk off the, uh, the track and field, you know, I would have been there for you, but you needed to be more committed to me. You should have really practiced more. You should have. And, of course, the whole bucket of shame drops, you know, pours out upon the person because the idol is whispering, and in the end, an idol in some way or another mocks us. The idol is, idols are really, really wretched. Now, in the ancient world, we had a very visible visible way of our of, of idolatry the the things that were made physically uh and li literally bowed bowed down to now in our modern world uh we tend not to do that and our idols are are more inward uh in our thoughts our ideologies um the things that we we crave the things that we want so in uh, another thought on tim keller tim keller i've said this before tim keller says that the best way to grow spiritually is to deal with the counterfeit gods, the idols in your life. That's, that's what he's brought into New York City uh, with a lot of skeptics. And they have, they have seen Christians, non-Christians, watching Christians, wrestling with their, with their idols. And that has exposed the non-Christian idols as well. Interesting, uh, just on, by way of point number five here, is that the law actually can help us understand our hearts.
The law is the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God found in Exodus 20. Um, the first uh, four actually have to do with God, um, God's preeminence. Uh, that is, that there shall be no other gods uh, before him. Um, the sacredness of God's name, his name shall not be used in vain. It shall always be used with great reverence. Um, and so when you think about these commandments, these are the, uh, the way we're to worship, the one we're to worship, and uh, the, the next commandments that flow from that, 6 through 10, those commandments are how we're to behave toward others. So we're not to lie, commit adultery, etc. cetera. Uh, what they bring out in the book here is that the, the law, the Ten Commandments, expose really where we have placed um, our priorities. The law exposes that we have turned away from the living God and we have pursued some other aspect of life. So a person who is uh, habitually lying, caught in, this, in this, uh, this existence of lying or falsehood, this person is turning actively away from trusting God and they're trusting in their own words and, uh, to, to protect them. So the law actually can reveal what it is that we are, we are worshiping. And then number six, good things morph into ultimate things. Uh, that is a really, really good way to think about our idols. Notice it's good things. Uh, in Christian circles, it tends to be good things. Uh, so um, it can be something as good as family. It can be something as good as diligence or responsibility or uh, a sense of duty or a sense of all of these things can be areas where something has become too important. How do we know it's become too important? We can tell by our reaction. We can tell by our thorny responses. We must be seen in a certain way. Someone must acknowledge our reputation. Someone must acknowledge our efforts. Someone must acknowledge we have not been living in light of the peaceful truth that God has received us. Jesus is our accomplishment. Jesus makes us beautiful. Jesus makes our reputation good. We've not been living there. We've been trying to manufacture another way of being seen. Right? So Good things morph into ultimate things. Now, the epicenter for this theological truth is Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. They exchanged the truth of God and turned away from the living God, and they, 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 they bought into falsehood, right? They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is the bowing down to some aspect of creation. That's a description of mankind in general. Romans chapter 1, uh, starting around verse 20, uh, 21, 22, you'll start getting the, uh, the feel of that. An idol is anything we have placed above God or even alongside God. So these are, can be good things and they morph into something ultimate. And in that morphing, we are bowing down and we are worshiping. Now in James 4, uh, Let's take a look at this. James 4, he does not mince any words. Um, you can take a look at in your worship folder for the, the scripture. If you have the Bible there, that'd be great. Um, the overall theme of James 4, 1 through 12, is friendship with the world. Friendship with the world. 
And uh, what this has done is it has led to turmoil in relationships. James starts off in verse 1 with a rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? It's good for Christians to be informed about this. Uh, Apparently Christians in Jerusalem didn't know or needed to be reminded. Well, what is the source of those things? And then he says, passions or desires are at war within you. So there is a turmoil inside the Christian, a turmoil, and this is finding expression. So there's an inner turmoil of things that are not resolved. I can't get what I want. And this is now boiling over in relationships. He says in verse 2, you desire and do not have. Isn't that frustrating? Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have. Um, Think of someone who uh, buys something they can't afford. Think of the, then think of the, potential blaming that would come out of that in a husband and wife relationship that you purchase something that you can't afford there's a desire to have something and they they get it but they also want their 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 spouse's esteem they want their spouse to to go along with this they they didn't really talk it over and then there's anger there's there's a lack of agreement and it all started from a person who just couldn't be happy with with what they had. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I'm pretty sure that James is meaning figuratively here, though this could be literal. James is saying that significant relational trouble comes out of a restless heart. Uh, Murder can be a slanderous statement about someone. You're destroying the person um, by your words. And he goes on. He says, you covet and cannot obtain unfulfilled desire. So you fight and quarrel. Um, He goes on and says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask And do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so even in the the prayer life of these folks, they are confused as to what they should be asking God for. And so their loyalty is exposed. And then look at verse, uh, verse 4. You adulterous people. So you see, at the desire level... They want another lover. At the desire level, in the heart, they want another lover. And this is Israel's history with Canaan. They want another lover. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So I'm going to turn to the world as my lover, as the one that can satisfy me. It's kind of a general term. And then James says, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what's the core issue of the heart? 
the heart is not satisfied in a relationship with God. Now, among us, we, we, we reflect on this, that that is true of the Christian. We want our church to have a safe environment where a person could talk and say, yeah, I can see that I am at war with God. That, that's, that would be a remarkable culture for a church to actually cultivate, where people can see and identify with this. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us that we were born with a desire to hate God. Now that is, we're still in recovery from that. We are suspicious at the core of how am I to live by faith and not by sight and trust in this God whom I must rely upon who's spoken to me. This is, we are all recovering from this, this enmity, this bitterness. Verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Difficult verse to, uh, to interpret, but the English standard presents it pretty simply here. But the spirit of God is actively working in us and is not producing coveting in us. The Spirit of God is actively working that we might find our deep satisfaction in God. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And now here's James giving pastoral advice. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves. That's the theme. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. And you will experience the grace of God, and he will lift you up. He will lift you up to see that you are being cared for. He will lift you up. Your heart will rejoice again and turn away from these idols. So we are called to do something, to draw near to God, humble ourselves, and then God will come through. He will work uh, by his spirit that is jealous within us to win our hearts. So there is a good, beautiful solution. So we're called to wrestle, to meditate, to watch, to examine, to fight, to run, to persevere, to confess, to resist, to submit, to follow, and to pray until we have been transformed into his likeness. This is a big struggle to fight over and with what rules my heart, what rules my heart. A reminder, God does not simply cool the heat in our lives. He transforms us in the middle of it. And so we are all uh, here today, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a recovering, are you ready? A recovering idolater. And you minister among recovering idolaters, and you minister to others who are in idolatry. 
So the Bible does us a remarkable favor. The Bible diagnoses our disease accurately. And of course, we're given Jesus. We're given Jesus who, when he was on the cross, was considered one cursed of God. He was considered, Isaiah 53 tells us, that he was numbered among the transgressors. Numbered among who? Numbered among the idolaters. Numbered among those who turned away from the living God. And of course, that was not true. But he gave his life for you, and his life is now powerful, powerfully available to you through the Spirit that you might resist and turn from these idols. What entangles you? What entangles you? Some aspect of this creation. Some aspect of this world is going to make you shine. Some aspect of this world is going to make you beautiful. Some aspect of this world is going to really make your life take off. We who believe in Christ enjoy many blessings. Let's not have them morph into ultimate things. Let's pray. Father, what a rich, what a rich passage of, of pastoral care. Father, I do ask that you will help us to wrestle and to meditate and to watch and to examine and to fight and to run. Father, help us to confess and to persevere. I hope that uh, your gospel of hope will be clear to everyone today. Grant, Lord, um, Grant, Lord, this difficult but good searching of the heart. Help us turn back to you. Give us the gift of turning back to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.